welcome to yet another edition of By Design this summer. My name is Fenella Kernabone. Great to have your company. Coming up today, what makes a home enduring? A great architect that it doesn't fall down? Maybe. Yes, indeed. Today on By Design, I'm joined by two architects with their top three picks on enduring Australian architecture, and we're focusing on iconic houses. We take a peek inside an iconic car, the design of the Citroen 2CV, and out of the home and into the Shearer's Shed, we visit Storm Bay on the Tasman Peninsula. It was at this point that Captain James Kelly, one of the pioneers of Tasmania's whaling industry, built this house. Uh, as a maritimer, he built right on the edge of the cliff. A farmer would have built in a practical way hard up against the road and so it's a one and a half kilometre driveway right down to he perched this little house. It looks like a really Irish seafarer's house, a teeny little cottage. And we'll be visiting that teeny little cottage. It's a shearer's shed on a cliff very soon on By Design. Now, whether that home, however, becomes iconic in the future remains to be seen. But it does beg the question as to why some houses endure while others simply fade away. And what effect does the successful house, that's one that resonates with us to non-architects and architects alike, have on the way that we build our houses and our urban spaces? The shortlist for the Victorian Enduring Architecture Award was announced in early 2014, and these were for buildings that are at least 25 years old. So today, two guests with their three examples each, their picks of enduring prize-winning Australian houses, as we consider what impact and influence they had. Joining me with their examples are architect Shelley Penn, a past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, and James Stoughton, co-founder of Workshop Architecture. Welcome. Thanks, Vanilla. Thanks, Vanilla. What makes something endure, Shelley? The quality of the building, which is really kind of everything. When I say quality, I mean every aspect. Is it wonderful to be in? Does it stand up well? Is it sustainable? Those are all part of the quality of a place. And if that quality is strong and it holds on and it's there for a long time, that's what's enduring. So it's not just that it stands up and continues and so on, but it's it's beautiful, it's resonant, it's lovely to be in, it's um, responsive to its environment, those sorts of things. Out of the houses which are, have won the Enduring Architecture Award in Victoria and, and the ones that are shortlisted this year, each of those has really left a lasting impact in terms of the inspiration that it's provided to generations of architects at the time and then since then as well. And I think that's one of the main points of the Enduring Architecture Award in actual fact is to have when the time and the dust has settled 25 years or more later to look back and really after the fads of that time and so on have passed to actually really see which buildings are great contributions and it becomes a lot clearer. And that point about style is really relevant because it's not about a particular style even though a building will be of its time whether it's in technology or expression but if it's enduring it kind of goes beyond style which really great places always do. It's something that's done with such quality and consideration and, and care that it really stands. It's still relevant despite changing values 25 years or beyond. Okay. Let's talk then, Shelley and James, about some buildings to give this some context. And James, I'd love to start with you because you talk about a couple of buildings that you describe as optimistic, both in Melbourne. Let's start with the first one, um, Peter McIntyre, the house in Kew, the A-frame house. 
What's it look like? What's it feel like? Well, it's called the A-frame house and it's very literally an A-frame in that way. At least the central structure is. But then it's got these long arms that extend out to make it a big triangular structure. It's really almost like a bridge, but with a central pylon in the middle that then has these projecting wings going out either side into the landscape because it's in queue by the Yarra River and it's on quite a steep site. And so a traditional building of the time, which would have taken uh, the walls all the way down to the ground. This is quite different. It's really perched up like that. So it's amongst the trees and its structure is almost like as if it were a tree in that it has a central trunk and these parts that extend outwards. And also there's a lot of flex within that structure, a bit how like how a bridge structure flexes, which would have been quite unusual to happen within a building at that time. And it's quite an interesting building to be in from that point of view because it moves much more than normal buildings. And this building was in 1955, is that right? Yeah, that is about right. I think that is right. Sorry, I should know the exact date. (laughs) It is, it is. And the other house, of course, is the house by Robin Boyd, the Boyd House in South Yarra. Why does this one make your list? This, I mean, this is a, is dearly loved by almost all architects in Melbourne, I would say. It was Boyd's own house that he built for his own family, and it was a real experiment about living in a modern world. It's quite an inward-looking house because it actually creates a courtyard between a main part of the house and then a, a separated bedroom section at the other end and a courtyard in between. And it looks inward, away from the rest of the context of the street, but in that way it creates its own kind of brave new world, I suppose, in a, in a way of a of buildings that are more engaged with with landscape and quite open, free plan as well. On By Design, my guests are Shelley Penn, architect, and also James Stoughton, who's the co-founder of Workshop Architecture, on their thoughts on Australian enduring architecture. Mm-hmm. And, and Shelley, in response to this house, of course, that Boyd built for his own family, you actually cited in your list of three houses of, of, of examples that you love of enduring architecture, the house that Harry Seidler built for his mother, Rose Seidler. How does that compare to the Boyd house? Well, it's interesting because it's of probably got similar genesis in terms of the modern movement, which is evident in both those houses. But it's a completely different thing in in terms, as James has described, the Boyd House is, again, I'd say highly site-responsive. There's a blurriness between the interior of the house and the landscape, the courtyard. They're all kind of the one thing within this urban shell. The Rose Seidler House is more of an object in in the modernist sense of an object which sits on a slight rise in a beautiful estate and you can go and visit it any time now because it's actually a museum. Just make sure you take your shoes off as you walk inside. Yes. Um, But it's very much, it's got the sort of optimism. I I agree. I think it's a great way that James has, you know, described those houses in that era of anything was possible and this brave new world was coming. But... There's certainly a strong relationship in terms of the idea of an open plan and a relationship relationship to landscape and spatial flow that's, I think, in both of those houses, even though they have very different expression. There are differences between Sydney and Melbourne architecture, and I think in a way they might typify that in some ways. Is The Sydney house is a light, bright, colourful, outward-looking, a very modernist house, and the Boyd Two house is... It's more inward looking and it's which is about Melbourne's climate and that particular context of a dense urban climate. Whereas Rose Seidler was out in a sort of free flowing, more almost rural landscape when it was done. But both these houses and perhaps all the ones we're talking about very much and I think Rose Seidler did very strongly bring the idea of open plan living, which is now pervasive. It's in, you know, every residential development. Um, where they build 
20 houses in a row, they've all got essentially an open plan focus on all of the living, kitchen, dining, all those sorts of areas within a house. And we just take that for granted now. And that's really got its roots in houses of this era. And Rose Sidler was a real sort of star for Australia in the, well, 1950. In fact, it was exactly mid-century. Um, well, let's get through a couple more of your choices here. And, and Shelley, maybe we'll go to your second one because it is a beautiful house uh, called the Magni House designed by our best-known architect today, Glenn Merkert, which won the National Australian Architecture Enduring Award in, in 2011. This house at Binji Binji was probably the one that encapsulated that and became best known for... Glenn's work, which is very much about touching the earth lightly, not just in an aesthetic sense where the house does actually seem to float a little bit above the landscape, but in terms of its use of resources and its relationship to the environment. So, you know, it's outstanding passive design in terms of minimising energy use because it draws on the sun, protection from the wind, water can flow through underneath it and all those sorts of things. So it has a very minimal impact on the actual landscape. But also it's about a really lightweight response to a land, to a landscape and in fact the clients for this house used to go to that site and camp there <laughs> and they wanted apparently they briefed Merkit that they wanted something that was kind of almost like camping that was as light and delicate in that way that was you could pack up and, and leave it paradoxically we're we're saying this is a great example of enduring architecture so it stayed and it's held on but it's it's really because of that beautiful responsiveness to both the site and to the client's brief you know, it's beautifully conceived. It's planned extremely well, so it works beautifully. It's functions, it's detailed exceptionally well to withstand the elements and all those sorts of things. And listening to that, it does, I feel there is a linkage between that and your third choice for enduring architecture, James, and that is, of course, the Heidi uh, number two home, which is all about the site, isn't it, and about the client? Indeed. I mean, the Heidi two house is well loved and very well known. And the house was designed as a, as a house and a, and a gallery, really, at the same time time with walls that project out into the landscape and then large areas of glass in between. So the landscape really is literally brought into the experience of the house in a very articulate and beautifully controlled way. And it's much loved, this building. And also that whole site there by the Yarra River out in Bulleen, it was the site of the where the Heidelberg School many years before this house was built would go out there and, and paint as well. So it's got a, a large cultural tradition as well as architectural tradition, that house, which a lot of which is encapsulated in that building. And, and finally, uh, Shelley, your third choice is the beautiful house, which uh, won the Queensland Enduring Architecture Award in 2013, the Orobin House. Why, why is this one? Because you were saying that it reminds you of Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, look, it, it, um, it does, and I believe it draws on that it comes from a sort of a heritage of organic what was called organic architecture. Somebody looking at it can sort of see a relationship with rights buildings in things like lots of quite heavy timber work, very deep eaves. But it's really about expression of the form and the roof form is extremely important. Unlike Wright, who, who was sort of known for very strongly horizontal houses with uh, very deep eaves over glazing on, on masonry plinths and so on. This is a tropical house. It's in Cairns. It's Interesting because it's very innovative. It's certainly not as well known as I think any of the other ones we've talked about, but it's a classic case of a building that was really conceived carefully, again, in response to its tropical climate. It's got deep eaves that protect it from the sun. It's got uh, windows that allow cross-ventilation and all those sorts of things. But it, its aesthetic is a very strongly geometric building where it's got a it's quite a heavily pitched roof that's asymmetrical with windows that slant off, you know, in relationship to that roof. 
it sits in amongst a very tropical uh, landscape. And I actually haven't been there, but I have been told it's fantastic and it's somewhere that I really <laughs> want to go in terms of being a, a place to actually walk into and be in. An experience. Uh, experience, And yeah. there are definitely images up on By Design's website mm. and on our Facebook page as well if you want to find out the names uh, and where these uh, six examples of houses are. And just finally, James, to talk about how to respect and to honour our, our homes, our architecture, uh, the idea that we think about our Australian architecture as being as important as an iconic song or an iconic character or something like that. Why is that so important to you? I think these very well-known buildings do become like sort of characters in our cultural landscape in a, in a sense, and certainly to the architectural profession, but some of these these houses that we've talked about have reached far beyond that. And I think a lot of the reason for that is that they've pioneered the way in which we live and they become therefore representative of how we see ourselves and what we want to be. It has been fantastic speaking with you both about some of our more enduring architecture uh, here in Australia. And I do thank my guests, James Stoughton and Shelley Penn. Thank you for joining me on By Design. Thanks, Vanilla. Thanks, Vanilla. Indeed, the past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, that is architect Shelley Penn there, also joined by James Stoughton, who is the co-founder of Workshop Architecture. And we do have some information on our website for all the details and a bit of a side note for you. Peter McIntyre actually won the Victorian Award last year. We're coming up next on By Design, a bit of a test drive with an iconic French design. We had this wonderful process of kind of undressing the building you know, it was this kind of architectural yeah. striptease. You're listening to By Design, here on RN, with Fenella Kernerbone. Well, they started production on this very classic French car in 1948. It is considered one of Citroën's most iconic cars. So here is Colin Bissett's on the Deux Chevaux, the 2CV Citroën. Just as the Sydney Opera House stands as a symbol for Australia then the Citroën 2CV could easily be said to represent France. It's the quintessential French car, demonstrating their love for individuality and innovation. The brainchild of Citroën's chief designer, Pierre Boulanger, he gave an unusually specific brief to his team. He wanted an umbrella on four wheels that could cross a field without breaking an egg. It must also be able to transport two farmers wearing clogs and their load of potatoes or wine. The car that evolved was a strange-looking machine with ridged aluminium bodywork for strength and a single headlamp. Its release in 1939 was halted by the outbreak of war and a slightly modified version was at last launched in 1949 with a taller profile, so that the driver could wear a hat. The 2CV, or deux chevaux, meaning two horses, although it had a nine-horsepower engine, is a masterclass in simplicity. A canvas roof rolled back to let in the sunshine, a flat windscreen and hinged flap front windows gave ventilation and good vision. The tubular steel seats with hammock upholstery could be removed to allow greater loads to be carried, and the frugal engine didn't waste expensive petrol. This was, in many ways, the perfect modernist car, with not a frippery in sight. A van version was soon available, and became a common sight in the French countryside. 
thanks to its practicality, the 2CV remained in production until 1990, its individuality notable in a rapidly homogenised market. It remains to be seen, however, if it will outlast the Eiffel Tower as a symbol of France. Colin Bissett there talking about the classic styling of the 2CV Citroën, the Deux Chevaux, which I remember as a child, a person next door had one on their median strip with grass growing up around the sides. Really gorgeous design. This is, of course, by design. You are on RN. design some pretty great sounds there for you from a young new york city producer called fote and that one is no sass Fenella with you this is by design our summer season here on rn and now we go in the field to the shearers quarters on bruni island just south of hobart on the east coast of tasmania it's crafted using leftovers from Tasmania's apple industry. Architect John Wardle's award-winning Shearer's Quarters is also built from shingles cut from old apple crates, discarded limbs from local pine trees and corrugated iron. It's a modest building and takes its cues from local history, the rugged terrain and the shape of the landscape. And if you look on our website, you can see some images up there as well. Here's Jan Ryan on site with John Wardle. So we're standing at the very edge of Storm Bay uh, and we can see across to this uh, southern flank of the Tasman Peninsula and the point where that terminates and the, the start of the Southern Ocean. It was at this point that Captain James Kelly, one of the pioneers of Tasmania's whaling industry and some of its early uh, agricultural practices, uh, built this house. Uh, as a maritimer, he built right on the edge of the cliff. A farmer would have built, in a practical way, hard up against the road, and so it's a one-and-a-half-kilometre driveway right down to he perched this little house. It looks like a really Irish seafarer's house, a two-storey dormant window, a teeny little cottage right on the edge of a cliff. How old is this cottage? It's always been gazetted as 1840, but it may be a few years earlier than that. And what's remarkable, the house was built... Pretty much, I'm not sure about the lining boards, but all of its structural timbers and everything from a small pit mill that they established here on the property. And we've been here in some amazing storms and it doesn't even squeak. It's, it's a remarkably rigid structure after 170-odd years. Now, you've built Shearer's Quarters next door. Why? Well, it was really Susan's idea. We originally planned to re- fully restore the old house and extend it quite substantially. And the thought was it'll take a long time, that'll be a sort of a year and a half's project. We'd have nowhere to live during that time. So Susan thought, why don't we then build a, a shearer's quarters, which the property does need. They can then have that in the long term and we use that as our temporary accommodation while we're doing this house. 
<laughs> as things happen, uh, our ambitions rose steadily throughout that project and what has started as a humble little place for shearers and friends um, became a much more intensive affair. This is a working sheep farm. Up until the construction of this, all our efforts got into the landscape and the, the farming potential of the property. And here we are now in front of the shearers' quarters and what a tiny little corrugated iron wooden hut it is. Yes, well, I'm pleased that that's the first impression you have of it because uh, a lot of the conceptual work was to make it as little as possible. And as we walk inside, that you'll see a sense of measurement to the whole house. The lining boards set up a 700mm grid that runs right through the house and orders everything. It's the proportioning device for each of the rooms. It locates the doors. It, it uh, sets the framing for the windows. And I just kept whittling it down and down and down until the spaces seemed right and about as small as plausible for what we wanted. And... Part of what this little shearer's hut is for you, it's an experiment in how to create new ways of living and use space in new ways. Yes, oh, absolutely. Here it appears absolutely shed-like, but it suggests uh, a whole series of relationships it has with the landscape, the structural history of the, the old house and the social history of the region. And it's a house that could have only been designed in this manner by becoming curious and investigating so much of the circumstances that surround it. Firstly, from an old photo we found from the 1940s, we realised this is the position of the old shearing shed. We found old footings and there'd be old brick sheep yards and things by scoring away the earth's surface. So that set in train the idea of a house that has a conversation with the old cottage. Well, let's go in and, and experience it ourselves. No shoes. No shoes. No shoes. What do the shearers do? Do they behave themselves? Yeah, that's why there's a shoe rack. Yeah, well, the shoe rack is in the country. You've been walking off paddocks full of sheep dung, so no shoes inside, and the sheep (laughs) rack is a strong reminder of that fact. So here we go. Door. Fly-wise screen door. Against the flies out. the flies out. Day's work in the shearing shed. Oh, it's so warm and lovely. It's so beautifully framed. Well, the, the views then became the next part of this equation as we looked at the sighting, so uh, the broad, open-ended uh, east elevation directly out to Storm Bay and the view to the headland that you see out before you. At the same time, yeah, there's a there's the this transverse view through that positions the dining table and looks directly up to the shearing shed. Actually, that sense of purpose about its coastal views the house slid back and forth many times on plan, but even when we first got down on site and the bulldozer was here levelling one small corner as it sat on this, perched itself on this part of the hillside, just at the last moment we slid the house back about another six or so metres. And that was partly as we set it out to get these views in the right position. So the house, there's still a lot of fine tuning and fine adjustment uh, that the process of engagement with our remarkable builders allowed us to do, which was a real luxury. The three walls of this house at the front are glass and wood, and now we're looking out across the northern uh, wall, which is where all the sun's coming in. Now, this does a few things. First, it provides the solar orientation. Yeah. Uh, And there's different kind of wood here, I can see. 
Well, the project started to be built in a fairly timely manner. It was was actually quite a fast process of construction until we met the problem of finding enough of this macrocarpa, Pinus macrocarpa, to form the internal lining or the primary internal lining. Pinus macrocarpa is one of those sturdy pine trees that you'll see as windbreaks throughout much of southern Australia. Um, We sourced it from about nine different suppliers, generally farmers or small timber millers, You'll notice as you walk down the house, away from the living room down to the end bunk room, the timber becomes knottier. Uh, it's very varied. As pine trees, they have a lot of branches, a lot of small branches. I thought maybe if, as we're sorting the timber, we could sort it so the clearer timber is at the front of the house in the living area, and it becomes knottier. <laughs> it <laughs> you, does um, indeed, it does. You'll notice that the density of knots uh, occurs uh, a long way down the house. Now we're moving down the hallway to where the, the sleeping quarters are. Now, there's stories of packing cases that came from the apple industry in Tasmania in this house as well. These remarkable boxes, the sides are made out of three millimetre timber, so that as on the ships on the way to England, the boxes would flex rather than bruise the apple. So it's interesting, mm. even the mm. formatting of the timber. Also, when England joined the common market at the very start of the 1970s, it overnight killed off much of Tasmania's apple industry. And so with that knowledge, I started to think, gee, there must be some great purpose for that box timber other than kindling which is all it's been so I started to collect it and then I got the idea of using it to line all of the cross walls um, I realized the opportunity to then form this shingle pattern and yeah and we're uh, in the bedroom and the bedroom's lined with shingles from apple crates yeah and so it's different in different rooms this is actually um, a blue gum in this room from another shed it's Tasmanian myrtle and so okay. they're from there from different sources and they so they recognize then the different parts of the Hewn Valley and the different sheds they're from. This is a, an interesting room, the back room, the last room in the house, right up against the property, no garden, house in the paddock. This is a room full of bunks. Yeah, well, there's a sort of status to a shearing team and generally the rouseabouts, uh, the young personnel that throw the wool out and sweep the floor and do all of that are out on the veranda or the bunk room or that sort of place. So this is intentional, even though it's at the end of the house, created as the bunk room for these guys. Mm. And intentionally, the whole of this West End elevation is a series of loos that open Mm. up to give it the impression of a breezeway. Mm. And the image of the house, of course, is very beautiful, and you can see those on our website. John, thank you so much for showing me around the Shearer's Hut. Great. Thank you. And that is Jan Ryan having a chat to John Wardle, the architect. And as Jan said, you can find some images on our website, abc.net.au slash rn. And while you're online, why don't you pop over and like our Facebook page too and download the podcast from iTunes while you're at it. Uh, that's the show for today, our summer show for today. My name's Fenella Kernerbone. Jan Ryan is our producer. Our sound engineer is Joe Wallace. See you next time and stay with us now for RN First Bite with Anita Barrow. <laughs> 